Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? Yes, road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am very excited about today's episode. Uh, My name is Ben. I got to tell you, did you notice I shaved? Bonjour, je suis Noël. And you can tell I am French by outrageous accent. Sort of a Disney Beauty and the Beast vibe. Uh, Not Gaston, the candlestick. Oui. And there's our super producer, Casey Pegram. Bonjour. Casey, you're going to absolutely love the uh, cartoonish French accents that I'm going to be dropping throughout this episode, sir. I'm here for it. Yeah, yeah let's, let's do it. And you're also here in in the same room as us because we're in a different studio, and I really like being able to look right at you and not be separated by glass and, you know, fiberglass. The the barriers that separate us, they've come down. Casey, I'm uh, partway through this. I'm going to reach out and hold your hand as I do my own terrible accents, and I want you to be ready for that moment when it happens. I'll prepare myself. Okay, do. Please do. Uh, So the three of us, I'm looking around the room, the three of us all have uh, facial hair of one sort or another. I typically, as you guys know, uh, my, my beard grows really quickly, so I am always like three hours away from a five o'clock shadow and I try to shave it when I want to look clean cut. And no, Is that a two o'clock shadow? Uh, it usually is about 20 minutes after I shave. And Noel, you yourself uh, have not shaved for years, right? Not once. Not yeah. even ever a trim. Mm-hmm. I just let it grow like an old prospector. Will you trim it? I do. 
I get it trimmed, actually. That is one of the luxuries I afford myself is mm-hmm. when I get a haircut, I get them to, to trim my beard as well and shape it up because I'm not qualified to do that. It's an art, and it's tough when you're doing it for yourself. And in case you, you've, you've had kind of a, a um, I would say, a, I would call that a beard, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, Ben, it's, that sounded a little dismissive. No, 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 because I'm trying to find because it's not it's not stubble, and there's some interesting studies. It's somewhere, it's somewhere in the, in the middle ground. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, like I usually maintain the same kind of thing uh, because there's a there's a fascinating study that says there's this spectrum yeah. of facial hair, and people tend to when they're looking at pictures of strangers, they tend to think that people with uh, bigger beards, like ZZ Top wizard style beards, are more uh, are, are wiser but less trustworthy. And the people who are clean shaven are more trustworthy, but perhaps with less real world experience. And then, uh, in a in a concurrent study, they found that now this may be controversial. Uh, they found that stubble was considered the most attractive of facial hair. Interesting. It's weird, right? You know why that might be? Why's that? Because it gives you the, it's sort of like half and half. It gives you the benefit of a clean shaven look. You can sort of see the skin still, uh, especially if you have like a nice jawline. And then you also get the ruggedness of a little beard sprinkling, kind of, you know? Mm-hmm. And I have a question for you guys about mustaches. Mm-hmm. Is a mustache a mustache if it's connected to a beard? You know, that's interesting because wouldn't it become at that point a goatee of some sort? Well, it's just all one assembly. Well, what if the mustache is grown out and waxed and it's sort of its own thing? But is there's it also called something else at that point? Yeah, I don't know. I don't well, know. Well, according to uh, my autocorrect, uh, which insists that I don't mean to type mustache, but, uh, oh, I got to tell you guys this story. Recently, I was looking back at my worst autocorrect mistakes of 2019. I wrote to my mom and I told her we were in a conversation. I said, uh, you know, I'm thinking of growing a mustache and autocorrect turned it into, this is true. I'm thinking of growing a moist ache. Mm. Sorry, mom. Moist uh, word aversion people are just losing their minds in the audience right now. I know, yeah. Imagine the the humiliation. Now, I grew a mustache once for um for a bet, but I've never committed to it. You have to be a specific type of person, I think. To you have to have the right facial structure, right? Dare I say the right vibe? Yeah. I I, I once shaved my beard. Um, except for the mustache, mm-hmm. and people kept telling me I looked like Ron Jeremy, so I never did that again. It also made my daughter cry. Whoa! Yeah, because she like didn't recognize me because she's you know I've had this beard since I was about fourteen, somewhere approaching this level of, of facial hair since I was at least fifteen or sixteen, and uh, she'd never seen me without it before. And I shaved everything off with the mustache. She was like maybe three, mm-hmm. uh, and she lost it. She she didn't know who I was. Three? That makes sense, though. That makes sense. And it's weird because when we first meet someone, we assume that that initial meeting, the initial, you know, shot we have of them in our heads is how they always look. That's why it feels weird if you meet someone while they're wearing a hat and then you see them the next time and they're not wearing a hat. You're like, whoa, what is this plot twist? It's kind of the same way with facial hair. Uh, And shout out to everyone listening who grows facial hair, who does that thing. I, I don't know if anybody else has done this, but when I have a, a full beard grown out and I like I like to shave into different auditions for facial hair, you know what I mean? Like I'll do the, what's that mustache that kind of goes down? It's like a- The Fu Manchu? Um, handlebar. Handlebar. Uh, is that what it is? The one that like, uh, 
I think so. Okay. It, it resembles a set of handlebars. There we go. But sometimes yeah. it usually connects up to the chops, though. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it becomes another thing entirely. I did that one where you shave everything except right here on the chin line, and I feel like an old-time prophet of some sort. Yeah, an old-time prophet or like a saloon uh, proprietor, perhaps. perhaps. Yeah. And so today, today we are exploring facial hair. I, I know that mustaches can be a divisive thing, right? Uh, because some people say they'll they'll never condone a mustache. Some people love them. They had a bit of a, a vogue moment in hipsterdom here in the United States a few years back. You guys remember when people were getting mustache tattoos and uh, like mustache tattoos on their fingers that they would put under their nose? Do you remember that? Yeah, I thought it was an odd commitment. Yeah. Why not just use the finger? The mustache is sort of implied. It's a tattoo, mm-hmm. you know. They're going to have that for a while. Yeah. But... Back in the early 1900s, Paris, France, uh, famously home to Le Bouche, mustaches became a huge hot-button issue. And it started with waiters. And this, this is so strange. Like, okay, so Casey, if we could ask you, can you bust a couple of stereotypes? I feel like the U.S. Uh, unfairly gives waiters in Paris uh, a bad rep. Yeah, they have the classic rap. I mean, it's it, it's a very um, common stereotype, right, of like the rude French waiter, the snooty French waiter. I, it really has not been the case in my experience. I've had maybe one rude waiter experience where uh, I think my bill came out to maybe eight euros. I had like 10 euros to pay for it. And the guy wanted exact change. And I had to explain to him that I only had a 10 euro bill. And he with his fingers is counting out like eight, eight. And he's saying the English word, eight, eight. And I'm telling him in French, like, no, I understand eight versus 10. I just need change. And as, you know, as soon as I kind of responded to him, like in fluent French, his whole demeanor changed and he was very apologetic. And he actually seemed somewhat embarrassed that he had behaved that way. Huh, and Casey, it's almost as though your francophone nature uh, it, it precludes you from the rude waiter behavior. This is true. This is true. But even in like earlier trips to Paris, it, it has been remarked upon that um, it has gotten more polite over the years. Uh, you know, some of the some of the waiting kind of uh, culture that we have in the United States in terms of the tip. Uh, and, and this feeling that it's almost like a kind of emotional blackmail. You have to kind of like act like your best buds with the person you're waiting on. In France, they are salaried employees, waiters are. So they're really not beholden to the customer the same way they are in the United States. It's it's more of like a, a trade or something that they practice. So they Wait, don't, does that mean you don't have to tip? That no. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, no, the, the tip to, is included. You could round up. Yeah, you can round up or something. But, but generally, the price, like the price of the food, includes the tip for the staff. So, do they make a good wage? Yeah, yeah. really. Yeah, interesting. And so, um, yeah, it, it's kind of cool. They, um, I mean, the waiters I've had tend to just be very professional, very quick, very efficient. Mm-hmm. They're not really much for small talk or for hanging out or anything like that. But at the same time, I have not experienced, like, so much rudeness or abruptness from them. Just That's, kind of, like, yeah. 
you know, cool customers and, and kind of just like there to get you your food and get out of the way. I yep. despise the American culture of small talk by waiters. I do too. And, and, and a shtick, a whole shtick where they have to do this whole song and Is dance. Is this your first time here? Oh, God. Okay, okay. Well, let me walk you through the menu and how this works, okay? You're going to want to start with a schnoz boz, yeah. all right? We we also have some, we also have half-off apps yeah. and we have bottomless toe feet. Yeah. Uh, you know, go oh, on. Yeah, for sure. Love me some Tofi, but don't want to hear about it. Want to make my own choice. Yeah. Please leave me alone. I, I'm, I'm sorry, any any wait staff folks out there. I, I know you're I, – I, I get it. I get it. Some people are all about that, and it will get you a better tip. I'm just a curmudgeonly old fart, and I just don't want anything to do with it. People in the service industry in the United States have uh, one of the most challenging gigs and careers in the country because of – tips, which we'll get to in a second because I have an advertisement that I think you'll like. So how you're listening and you're thinking, oh, guys, how are you going to bring these disparate things together? How are you going to bring French culture and tipping and mustaches together? Well, strap in because we are going somewhere with this. Let's start at the very beginning. Archaeologists think that mustaches were always kind of a human thing, even back when people were living in caves. Uh, there is strong evidence that members of our species used shells and tweezers to shape facial hair into, uh, you know, one design or another. It was naturally occurring tweezers you always hear so much about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. The common tweezer, I believe, is the Latin. I mean, I guess the most basic, you know, improvised tweezer could just be two small sticks. Yeah, sure. Put together like chopsticks and you mm -hmm. just pluck. Or maybe split a... Uh, Split a branch. There you go. Uh, vertically. See, that is some very industrious thinking right there, my friend. Thanks, man. Oh, but although we know facial hair was uh, decorated and, and can I say manscaped? Does manscaped apply just to the Australia? Or I does think it... it's trademarked. Okay. So you might not, you might get sued, but you know what? Let's roll the dice. This is the Casey and the Case sound cue all over again. It really is. So when did the mustache, as as we know it today, come into being, Noel? Or when did it, you know, really explode on the scene? Well, it really got its uh, its footing, uh, if you can imagine a mustache with, with feet firmly planted in the cultural zeitgeist, in England during the Elizabethan era. In those days, as you can imagine, uh, the beard reigned supreme. Uh, and King James I and his son, old King Charles I, uh, decided that they were going to make a splash and turn this this uh, beard thing on its end um, and uh, make themselves really stand apart from the crowd um, by debuting their handlebar mustaches. Yeah, yeah. And the hoi polloi, the masses, followed suit. You know, and this is something we see a lot with fashion in general, right? Some of the um, the more elite, whether political elites or financial elites or just uh, fashion elites, they, they do something. They're kind of the early adopters of a style, and then it filters down and, and it becomes more popular and mainstream. And that's what happened with the mustache. When Britain moved away from Puritan rule, the mustache stayed, and it was a status symbol. King Charles II had a mustache, and you can see portraits of him in his early teens where he already has his mustache. Peter the Great in Russia 
attempted to control facial hair through implementing a beard tax. This is a real thing. It was in 1698. He went through Western Europe and he thought, you know, he's like, after my trip abroad, I feel that uh, beards and facial hair are more old fashioned than masculine. So we're going to charge 60 to 100 rubles for anyone who wants to grow a beard and they have to have a little token they can carry around. So the three of us would have to carry, would have to pay the beard tax at that time. For what? Like, when do you have to deliver this? Like, is it like you pay it like yearly or quarterly or just like you get shaken down by, you know. The beard cops? The beard cops? <laughs> the beard police? It sort of reminds me of the butter tax, the indulgent, mm-hmm. the butter boxes or whatever. Like, for the privilege and decadence of having a beard, you got to pay. Yeah, it's a weird thing. And he wanted to uh, incentivize people to be clean-shaven. He felt like that would be more Western European of them. So people didn't want to pay the beard tax, of course. Mustaches became the way for men to, in, in this time, for men to show that they were grown. You know, they were manly men. I see. And would you have to pay a mustache tax? No, no. That did not qualify for mm. the beard tax. No, but mustaches were so popular. Uh, they, they have an occasional resurgence here in the U.S., but mustaches were so popular back in this time that the British Army required mustaches as part of their official uniform from 1860 all the way to 1916. It's true, and we have gotten uh, some of this information from a wonderful article on fatherly.com um, about the history of mustaches. By the way, check out our partnership with them, uh, Finding Fred, about uh, the delightful Mr. Rogers, who for some reason we have not done an episode about. He had some really interesting things where he uh, spoke out about, you know, war and and actually included some pretty heavy topics in some of his early black and white shows. Mr. Rogers is a veteran as well. He is, yeah. And uh, really, I don't know. I I really that's I I watched that. How won't you be my neighbor documentary on a plane? And Mm -hmm. I was uh, sobbing by the end of it. And I texted my kid and I said, "You're special just the way you are." (laughs) And she uh, she she knew I was telling the truth. Mr. Um, Rogers, clean shaven. He is clean-shaven and therefore much more trustworthy, I suppose, mm-hmm. right? Mandy Patankin, sometimes clean-shaven, sometimes bearded. You never know. You never know what you're going to get. Um, but, yeah, it's true what you say, that the British Army actually required mustaches. As Can you imagine? It's part of their uniform. Uh, you know, that's, uh, I think of a uniform as his clothes, but that I guess it's a haircut, a haircut, an army hair. I, it makes sense. Okay, I, I'm back. I'm back in it. Um, so by the end of the 19th century, um, according to this uh, lovely fatherly article, it became a kind of a health liability for cleanliness because, uh, you know, there was more research being done into hygiene. And, um, you know, there were issues with tuberculosis spreading and such and other diseases. And so beards were started, started to be looked down on as like a vector of, uh, of spreading germs. Mm-hmm. Rightly so. Uh, this went across the Atlantic as well. New York City actually banned milkmen from having beards in 1902. Hospitals in Britain forced staff and patients to shave and... Because of this new emphasis on cleanliness and shaving, in 1904, a guy with a fantastic name. Oh, I love this name. King Camp Gillette got the patent for the first ever disposable razor, and cleanliness became increasingly important. Beards were on a little bit of a downward trend. And I have I have one, one gear to grind uh, that I, I want you guys to take on. Grind away. Thank you. Uh, here it is. So... 
When I was living abroad and I was in a place where most things were uh, much less expensive than they are here in the States, with one exception. Is it razors? It is razors. Razors were even more expensive than they were in the States. And this was in Central America. I don't know. They had a monopoly. So eventually I just uh, let my beard grow out and I came back looking like a... Oh, that era of the Beatles where they all had nice suits but crazy beards. I love that era. It's true. I will say this, and this is just sort of unrelated, but the fact that I haven't shaved in such a long time mm. gives me a pretty sweet ability to just rock a disguise if I need to, like, go on the lamb. That's true. That's true. If I shaved and, like, did my hair differently, you wouldn't recognize me. Well, I would. I would you might. It. You might, Ben. But, uh, but I wouldn't give you away. Uh, also, kudos to you for not participating in that 2009-2019 facial uh, comparison thing. I didn't do it. No, I didn't do it either. I did not do it for any ideological reasons. I just I didn't get around to it. But yes, our boy, King. I was going to call him, yes, get it, King. King Camp. King Camp. <laughs> He's the king of camp. Uh <laughs> Oh, there's so many ways you can go with that. Uh, Gillette, it's true. Um, and back to your, your um, South America thing. I wonder if it was because they didn't have a factory that made them? They had to import them, perhaps? Or? Yeah, imported. That Maybe. was, yeah, they were actually the only razors I could find. Uh, there, were, there were two kinds, and they were both, in my opinion, ludicrously expensive. But back at this time, people needed these razors. There was definitely a market. We also have to consider the role of gas mask because gas mask would not seal properly if someone had a beard. And so people had to shave if they wanted to survive being gassed. Yeah, and that comes from a really great BBC article called The Mustache, A Hairy History. Um, Check that one out as well. Um, So, yeah, that's interesting. You know, it wouldn't seal because the little hairs would just poke through there Mm -hmm. and then you could uh, get contaminated. And so now, with this rise and fall, waxing and waning of popularity for the beard, the mustache becomes a statement, a statement of maturity and masculinity. According to Christopher Oldstone Moore, who wrote Of Beards and Men, The Revealing History of Facial Hair, men who stuck with mustaches at this time were either older men sticking to the older standard you know, kind of this military look, or they were strong-willed individualists who didn't need or care to follow the new rules of cooperative manliness. So there you have it, folks. The mustache becomes a statement. That's our main takeaway here. Now let's fast forward a little bit to the rise of the first modern restaurants in Paris. These started out as establishments for the wealthy, and there's, we're getting some of this from a great article on Atlas Obscura. The restaurants wanted to recreate the feeling of dining in a very nice place, an opulent mansion, a palace, what have you. And this means there was this sort of gestalt experience. It was not just about the food. The waiters, the service staff also had to look like domestic valets and domestic valets at this time, and traditionally, were not allowed to wear mustaches as a sign of their rank. That's right, much like that British officer's uniform where it was uh, was required. And in this article, uh, a historian named Gil Mahaley um, was quoted as saying that diners were actually allowed, able to essentially pay a fee to humiliate these people. 
um, in in a bizarre institutional kind of way, uh, which seems very cruel. Yeah, because they were paying they were paying for food, sure, but they were also paying for the experience of being the master Bossing of an someone around. Yeah, yeah. yeah, which is why uh, first off, never say garçon because garçon means boy, right? And that in itself is kind of a reference to this dynamic that was going on. According to Gil Mahaley, this idea of regulating facial hair in France is rooted in colonialist expansion and the Industrial Revolution because people who were less well-off had more access to what had once been luxury goods. And when that happened, the elite, the haves of society, had to turn to stuff money couldn't buy for a new way of communicating their status. Gil Mahaley, by the way, is, uh, I don't think we're pronouncing that quite correctly because he, uh, he is French, but he is, uh, among other things, an editor at uh, Cassure magazine um, in French, a French publication, and has written very extensively on the role of masculinity in French culture. Mm-hmm. And that's why that's why he comes into the picture uh, with this facial hair ban. So now the elites want to communicate their status through their uh, their right or their privilege of possessing facial hair. And according to Gill, it was intensely humiliating for people in France to return from a war and then be told that they have to shave their mustache just to get a job. Uh, He says that to be denied the mustache was to be demeaned, infantilized, emasculated, even depatriated in front of their families, neighbors, and friends. Man, that is assigning a lot of uh, meaning to the stash. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, you, you see where we're going with this. Yeah, it really felt as though you were being stripped of your freedom, your liberté. Did I say that right, Casey? Liberté? La liberté. Liberté. Yeah. Casey on the case. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. 
I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And this all leads us to the great French mustache strike of 1907. Uh, Casey, here's this. Here's this ad. We're just going to read this ad to you, okay? And uh, this ties in all that stuff we were talking about at the beginning. Hotel keepers refused to yield, bitterly opposed a plan for arbitration with striking Paris waiters. Big American tips blamed. Bill before Parliament to make it impossible for employers to bar employees' mustaches. Right. Uh, and that's the thing. Uh, Americans actually were a big part, um, if indirectly, for this strike. Um, you can't really understate uh, how important the culture of American tipping is in this whole thing. We talked about it at the top of the show. I was blissfully unaware, as I have not traveled outside of uh, of the United States in, in a hot minute, uh, that you don't tip in Europe. Is it Europe in, in, as a whole or is it just France? I think it varies a little bit country to country. Got it. Yeah. But in general, the idea of tipping 20% is uh, an American concept. And I'm, and I, 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 I don't care for it particularly. I, I mean, I, I, get, I get how the system works, but I'm like, just charge me what the food is worth. Just Charlie, I love it when, when, the, when the tip is built into the check. I don't have to mm -hmm. think about it because it creates all of this like one-upsmanship, right? You know, the thing about a meal for me is I, I think a good meal should end with maybe coffee or a dessert, not having to do math. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but so, you know, the French not into this concept either. Sure. And when American tourists would come, it raised the the specter of tipping in a culture that hadn't really had to contend with it. Because there was some tipping already in, in French culture at this time, uh, which was in the early 1900s. But it was nominal at best. Uh, I think um, the, um, the kind of influx of American tourism really raised the bar on tipping because Americans uh, were more used to tipping. Right. And as we see this increase in the average tip for the average Parisian uh, restaurant employee, we see that the owners of cafes and restaurants are also clocking that rise in income and they start levying charges on their staff to get, you know, their cut of the pie. So the waiters go on strike at these high end restaurants and they demand better pay, more time off. And they say, hey, 
let us grow our mustaches out. Let us have the facial hair we want. At the time, this uh, the mustache had been almost ubiquitous amongst uh, male French residents for decades. And priests, domestic servers, and waiters were often not allowed to have it. They said it was forced shaving. They felt sentenced to forced shaving. And according to one estimate, when they did finally strike, they cost the city roughly 25,000 francs a day in revenue. I just wanted to jump in here real quick. The word, the French word for tipping is pourboire, mm-hmm. which roughly means like for drinking. It's like drinking money. So you can kind of see just implied in the in the word itself that they're not necessarily talking about somebody's livelihood. It's just like mm-hmm. a little bonus to kind of, um, you know, reward really good service, but it's not going to like pay your bills. Oh, drinking money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not like drinking money. No, no, no. It's, <laughs> okay. it's just like, you know, beer, beer money. Got yeah. it. Yeah. Got it. Casey on the case. Always. So according to one contemporaneous newspaper, there's, there's a line here that I thought you would enjoy. Women are quite determined to starve with their children rather than see the whiskers of their husbands still fall under the razor. So the families were supporting the guys striking and they were like, no, you're not a man. And like, you know what? You know what, Francis, the man I married, he had a mustache. Sure did. But, you know, it wasn't all support for, for the striking waiters. I mean, there were some folks that were like, what are you guys doing? Like, you know, this is that's how it always is with strikes. I mean, it, not not always, but like you, there's going to be folks that like just look at it as like being greedy or trying to, you know, get more money or if there's no real hardship involved. Like, you know, one thing when like coal miners are living in horrific conditions and striking for better pay, better working conditions. But this is, you know, I could see how there could be some detractors for this. Sure. And there's also a sort of a know your place lowly peasant that's kind right. of vibe. That's true. That's true. And Am not, I on the wrong side of history here, Ben? No, no, no. Okay. I mean, I, it's it's strange because the people who stayed were considered, like, not everybody quit, obviously, and some people jumped in to fill the new, uh, to fill the new positions that had opened up. But the people who stayed were considered kind of traitors, scabs. And ah, yes. Strikers were like, come on, man, what's going on? Don't you also want to be a man and grow your mustache? There's a weird uh, L.A. Times report from April 20th of 1907 that includes some of my favorite innocent bystanders. So the authorities are trying to clear out these strikers, right? And they expel every clean-shaven man, including, apparently, a dozen innocent Americans who had just arrived in town, knew nothing about the strike, and were (laughs) astonished by how hostile the police were. Were they given a walloping? Yeah, well, they were forcefully pushed out of town, you mm-hmm. know. Literally, ran out of town on a rail. How do you like that? So what do we know about the uh, the details of this strike? A, a lot of our information does come from uh, Gil Mahaley, but some of the details are still unclear, right? What was the Dreyfus affair? Dreyfus affair, that's that's tricky territory to get into, but basically it's where this guy was falsely accused of I don't even remember what, uh, but there was a lot. Of, it was like a proxy for anti-Semitism, basically. Mm-hmm. It's it's still referred to today in in uh, in kind of contemporary French culture, the Dreyfus affair, and uh, Roman Polanski. His new film is called Jacques, and it is also about the Dreyfus affair and him kind of comparing himself to Dreyfus. Really? Yep. Yep. Really? A little bit. A uh, little Be- bit gross. Because the Dreyfus affair. Uh, 
the guy was falsely accused. That is true. Polanski and, uh, Polanski's did that. on the record. I mean, there's no there's no question that it happened. So, Polanski yeah. knows what he did. Yeah. Society knows what he did. And there's also some new charges for Polanski that have come out just within the last month or so. Is that right? Yeah. What are those? More uh, just just more allegations of him doing geez. you know terrible stuff. What happened to like what happened to good old fashioned like dirtbag crimes? Why aren't people like bouncing checks and doing small time cons for wristwatches? That's a good question, Ben. It was, we, a simpler, we, it was a simpler time. But we, the reason I bring up the Dreyfus affair is because that, uh, what, you know, I know it's complex, Casey, and I appreciate you shedding some light on it for us, but it was another one of these kind of high watermark moments of like what are what is French identity kind of you know and the it, this is obviously a little more of a frivolous example but this mustache strike was as well yeah yeah we don't know exactly how many people went on strike or exactly when they started striking the numbers that we've been able to gather have a pretty wide range some say hundreds were striking others say thousands and others say that it came and went in waves. People argued different facts, you know, and some people were against the strike just for scientific reasons, for hygienic concerns. They said, look, if people wear mustaches, are they going to clean them? Is there is this detritus and scruff from their mustache going to go into the food we eat? Someone else pointed out in Le Journal, on April 22nd, they said, watching a mustached man eat, certainly a common sight in the day's restaurants, regardless of the appearance of the wait staff, is repugnant to Ooh. the viewer. That's, that, that, that wounds me to the quick, Ben. Um, but I will say that even today, like, I mean, you're not allowed to, a lot of police people that work in kitchens and stuff, mm -hmm. they have to wear like beard nets. Yeah. Which is the most humiliating thing in the whole world. I don't know. I, I always thought it was a hygienic thing. Right? It is a hygienic thing, but it looks ridiculous. And I always wonder whether they actually work. You know what I mean? It just seems like a lot of humiliation for not much payoff. But I don't know. I get it. I, I, I've seen my beard hairs uh, make their way into the food that I'm eating occasionally. Um, it's it, I would be grossed out if I, if I saw an unrecognized hair. I'm used to my own beard hairs, but others, no thank you. <laughs> right, right. So this cause catches fire for it's uh, the people opposed to it, the people supporting the strikers, uh, eventually reaches parliament where a guy named Antide Boyer, the socialist deputy from Marseille, makes a bill. He proposes a bill in parliament that says, let's make it illegal to ban mustaches. And let's say that if we catch you banning mustaches in your restaurant or place of business, you could be imprisoned for up to three months. And weirdly enough, he introduced this bill before the 1907 strike began. We have a pretty good quote from him in the New York Times. That's right. Uh, Boyer in the New York Times described the bill as the product of some misguided noblemen and presumptuous middle-class folk cling to the belief that they are honoring themselves by forbidding their servants, whom they treat as slaves, to wear mustaches. Such a practice under a democratic republic is grotesque and humiliating. Uh, he went on to say that a resurrection of bygone tyranny, contrary to the principles contained in the Declaration of the Rights of Man, was another way of looking at this affront. So he's saying, hypocrites, hypocrites all. This bill fails, but luckily it turned out not to be necessary because by May, waiters 
across the city of Paris had won back the right to wear mustaches. Oddly enough, in negotiations, some waiters chose to take the right to wear a mustache in exchange for some of their other demands. So they made concessions on things like pay or days off. Really? To keep their mustaches. Garnish my wages. Just don't take away my mustache. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's very intense. They really felt strongly about these mustaches. So this kind of became a, a symbolic victory for some. And in material terms, they weren't winning that much. So according to the historians, maybe the waiters got hoodwinked or maybe the strike was only kind of about labor and workers' rights. Maybe it was more about the ability to define oneself and uh, the concept of belonging as an equal in society. So the bill didn't pass, but uh, a lot of folks were able to get their rights to mustaches back. And uh, there was actually another slightly less spectacular uh, mustache strike in, in 1908, thereabouts. Um, that that kind of ended without much uh, fuss. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, if your employer requires you to dress a certain way or wear a certain thing, you can choose to work there or choose not to work there, right? It's tough. It depends on the market. What if there's only one kind of job you can get? That's, you a, good know? That's a good point, Ben. So this concludes our episode, but not our show. We haven't even trimmed the edges of the complex role mustaches play in various societies, facial hair in general. I like what you did there, though. Thank you, man. Yeah, it was good. I, I hit it in my stash of terrible jokes. Oh, my God, man. I You're know. on fire. No, I'm, oh, this is terrible. You, you, you should be set on fire, is what I mean. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, 100%. Got it, got it. But thankfully, we work in podcasting, where we can have, we can wear our facial hair however we damn well please. Yeah, look, uh, we are garbage fires sometimes in the studio uh, and we just try to we try to sound like we are better dressed than we are just roll in here with tattered <laughs> sweatpants yeah i'm in my baby yoda uh onesie you know but you are right now oh yeah yeah for sure i'm rocking this yeah. oh yeah i'm wearing a panda bear kigurumi and it looks wonderful on you it really just i strike a dashing figure in a, in a fluffy animal costume. So let us know your favorite facial hair stories. Also, mustaches. Are you for them or against them and why? You can let us know on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, where we are Ridiculous History, Ridiculous History Show, or some variation thereof. You can also find us as individual people and see our various uh, facial hairs on our own stuff. I am Instagram at Ben Bolin and Twitter at Ben Bolin HSW. You can find me exclusively on Instagram at How Now Noel Brown. Big thanks to Super producer Casey Pegram, as always, Alex Williams, who composed our delightful theme that you're hearing this very moment. Christopher Hasiotis here in spirit. Eve's Jeff Coat, as always, and of course, Gabe Luzier. And where would we be without uh, the Quizzelator, the Quisterino, aka Young Quizzles, aka Jonathan Strickland, aka the Quizzer, aka the Quizzler makes mouths happy. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks to you, Ben. Hey, likewise, Noel, and thanks. Uh, you know what? While we're thanking everybody, uh, thanks to all the people who haven't been jerks to folks about how they want to dress or look. Agreed. See you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I am the ferryman. 
In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. I got a big heart. And I'm very forgiving, but like, don't abuse it. It's been abused enough. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry. The world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 